Just wanted to start off by saying that while I work at Etsy, my opinions are my own. Welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and artisanal beard wax. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pi or Pi Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller, and in an ideal world, I would wear exclusively shorts and flannel shirts. Mm. Uh, we need to thank Reactive Ops again for sponsoring getting this podcast up and going. Cloud infrastructure is hard to get right, and everyone is moving towards Kubernetes. Reactive Ops can get you there. You can deploy faster, scale better, iterate, and improve to get ahead of your competitors with great cloud infrastructure. Look them up at reactiveops.com. And as I always disclose, I also work at Reactive Ops, so just so there's no obvious conflict of interest there. Today on the show, we have Matt Newkirk, who is a Senior Engineering Manager at Etsy. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. What group do you uh, do you senior engineering manage at Etsy? So I senior engineering manage the localization and translation group at Etsy, which um, consists of machine translation, human translation, and building locally credible experiences across all of Etsy's website, as well as our, our native apps. Cool. Do you translate then just the, the primary, like the website headings and all the interaction, or are you also translating... Every single item, you know, if somebody lists uh, artisanal leather shoes with embroidery, are your people doing that? Is that the machine learning part or do you just not translate the titles of individual items? That's a great question. So we do definitely translate everything, um, all of the Etsy copy. So everything you see on our homepage and emails and marketing, all that stuff we do with human translators. And then all of the things that are user generated content, so our listing titles, descriptions, even conversations between a seller and a buyer speaking different languages, that's all machine translated. And does anybody ever buy something that was translated horribly wrong and are mortified by what they got? Yes. Yes, they do. Um, (laughs) Which I guess you're trying to keep from happening, but... Yes. Um, Thankfully, we have a really wonderful support team. And so we're able to intercept those issues when they come in and then and then fix them. (laughs) Yeah. And usually really quickly. Um, We've we have had interesting experiences where uh, in one case, our machine translator translated the word (laughs) French surrounded with parentheses as the word English. (laughs) Which, as you might imagine, mean different things. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's, that's impressive. How, how many different languages are you translating things into? Is it is it just English and French, or is it Japanese? And is there fifty different languages, or six? That is a great question, and one I really should have prepared an answer for. (laughs) (laughs) For for everyone's credit, Matt asked me specifically ahead of time what numbers he should have prepared in case I asked, and I I didn't think I was going to ask this question. And Kendall's a jerk. That's what's what's going on here. And now everyone else knows too. But um, we we majorly support about 10 languages, and we, we have varying levels of support for different languages as well. So some of our languages we will pre-translate listings. So for example, you are an English speaker and you're searching for something French. And so when you go to search, you you want to make sure that you can can see everything. So in the search results, you're going to see English. 
And we do that by being able to store all the translations in some local caches. There's a really nice code is craft post that one of my engineers wrote just about that. But for some of our, our things, uh, when you're a buyer and you go in, we don't, we don't have stored translations for every single language pair necessarily. And so you have to do what we call on-demand translation. So you click a little, like, see this in your language uh, mm -hmm. link, and then it'll appear, and then we'll save that for the next user. Um, oh, okay. That's so efficiency. At least, you know, you do the work once, and then you save it later the first time. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a step back, because uh, this, you know, this is about leadership. Um, um, we'd like to know uh, your path, about your path to leadership, to management. Like, how did you get to where you are now? Starting anywhere you'd like, actually. <laughs> I will start in on January first, nineteen ninety-seven. Ooh, was, that, was a day That's very specific. <laughs> yeah, well done. Yeah, so that was the day that I became a coder for the Two Towers LP MUD, which is, if you're not familiar with a MUD, it stands for Multi-User Dungeon, and is effectively a text-based World of Warcraft. So you would connect through Telnet. We didn't have SSH or anything fancy like that back then. And so you'd connect through your client of choice, which was probably ZMUD. And you would, <laughs> you would log in there. And we had the same environment for uh, our players as well as the, the coders. And on January 1st, I, I switched over. And I, I got a whole set of new permissions and um, became a newbie and... Um, I, I got a little mentorship. I, I built a, a project plan for this little, I don't know, seven-room quest. <laughs> and I spent the next month or so learning uh, LPC, which is a really easy, basic, typeless variant of C, and kind of learned from there. And over the next year or so, I started learning more about how to write more complicated functions because when you're, when you're working in, in LPC, most of the time you're just taking templates, uh, pre-existing templates, and then changing description and text. It's, there's really more content creation than there is coding. Um, and over time, I started to build more complicated functions. And, and after that, I started writing more system-level code. And at that time, learned a lot about like live kind of continuous de development in a world um, that existed outside of Jenkins and, and other kinds wait, of... Wait, I have to stop for just a second. In a world outside of Jenkins. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, actually, I, I, I want to interrupt here really quick. Uh, sorry. And uh, ask you, you said you got a little mentorship. So was this primarily about the programming? Um, how, does, how did the mentorship happen in this sort of distributed world. Yeah, so this was, because this was a Lord of the Rings themed uh, system, even even the, the, uh, the programming world also had that kind of construct. So I joined the newbie domain and there was a newbie lord or lady, I can't remember <laughs> at this point <laughs> who it was, but their, their job was effectively to work with me to make sure that I understood how to build this project, which meant partly how, how to work. It, it, this was in, in many ways my first real job where I had a project assigned to me and deadlines and I needed to show progress on a pretty much day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I was able to get mentorship on, on how, how to write some code, where to find code pointers, um, 
there was there was that official mentorship and then a lot of unofficial mentorship through other uh, programmers there uh, who give kind of varying levels of support from let's walk through this line by line and I'll tell you what you need to do to RTFM. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and was the, was the goals and the projects you were given were they high level, like Matt, we need a new dungeon by next Friday. Or was it like, Hey, there's this, you know, I, I, I have very limited experience with muds. You know, it's, it's really like the few times I fiddled with them, but like there's a field and we need places to go from the field or like what kinds of, you know, yeah. direction were you getting? And in comparison, I'm in, I'm logged into a mud right now. <laughs> so th- this, this was an entire volunteer uh, staff. So the deadlines were very, relatively loose (laughs) except while you were a newbie where it was very like probational and the idea was like if you can't if you can't finish your project within a couple of months then this is probably not going to work out so at that point when i joined i was given some options of where to add my project um the main oh boy my i can't remember all of the the place names anymore it's been too long but uh oh west arda (laughs) which is like where the hobbits lived and rivendell and all of the all of those areas were pretty full at that point and so i was asked to add something more into east arda which is like Mirkwood and uh, Thranduil's Caverns and going further south down towards Mordor. And so if I remember correctly, I ended up adding a quest in Mordor. And uh, it was a quest to fight a orc commander of some kind for this sword that for some reason I called a Silent Slayer. And the whole... The best part about building a quest as a as a newbie coder was being able to write the um, we call them emotes, but basically like the messages that were sent based on different damage levels, <laughs> and oh, wow. they were unlike pretty much anything else in the game. Those were usually with color and. It was, you know, when you were fighting, that was like the most exciting part of the game. The The combat mechanic itself was pretty boring, but being able to write some really cool, stylized and color colorific <laughs> <laughs> weapon emotes was just the best. Yeah, that's cool. And so and from there, so you, you, you got some mentorship and you started to learn how to program. Yeah, uh, at least in that particular scenario oh, and go you ahead, picked Kendall. up a key and you walked through a door and you were at etsy yes that exactly. sort of derailed your, your your journey there but i assume that's how it is. sorry continue yeah so i think the the shorter version from there is after i graduated from that project i joined the endor domain which consisted of like five other people and uh from there i, I became the lord of that domain which didn't mean a lot other than i kind of was the project manager and i made sure that all of our projects were known i checked in on the other people as they were working on their projects and for bigger projects i made sure that we were all coordinating coordinating together um, to make sure that we were working on a common thing. And at, at the time, all of the different domains were working on this jumbo project of um, Minas Tirith, which is, you know, like the giant citadel at the end mm-hmm. of Return of the King. And, you know, it had s- seven different levels and different domains had ownership of different levels. And so it was, it was very... 
it's kind of like a space shuttle built by, you know, different countries. Like the pieces don't always fit together, but um, it was a lot of fun. And from there, I became an overlord of theme, which, may, which meant that I was responsible for the canonical uh, direction and correctness of the entire game. And that led me to um, develop quality standards for every other coder of the game. And that was kind of my start into real leadership and figuring out, like, I don't really have authority over these, over these people. I can say no to their project, but, you know, at the end of the day, I still have to find ways to work with them. And at the time, I was, like, 16 years old, so I did not do a great <laughs> job of that. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of lessons in hindsight here with a Ooh, decade. Tell us one. What 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 is the, the the weirdest or dumbest or most embarrassing thing that happened while you were doing that? Oh boy! Like it's... I can see this being you know one of those leadership lessons where you have to you you don't have authority and we talked about this in a previous podcast where when you're managing volunteers, you have to inspire them. You have to make them want to walk in the direction that you're going in, um, and that can be really difficult especially when you're 16. Oh, 16 year old Matt, I can totally imagine it. Yeah. So. I think, I think the hardest part, I, I think the, the most awkward thing is that I, I think as a 16 year old, I thought my job was to be a checklist of no's. So mm. it'd be like, you know, it doesn't really make sense for tomatoes to be in this part of the game because <laughs> we're really, we're looking at like, you know, like 13th century-ish, England-ish, um, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right, and so there was a lot of, like, going back and correcting, you know, really sloppy thematic decisions made by my predecessors. Um, no, right, anyone who has <laughs> ever been in the SCA, oh, that's not period, yeah. it's totally not period. It was a really, it was a really great job for learning how to be pedantic, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and have you brought that forward into your current life? <laughs> yeah. Well, so what was next? How did you move from MUDs on? Yeah. So I did that on and off for about 17 years. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and in the meantime, I, I worked in um, retail and food service and I played a bit of poker and fixed laptops for med med and vet students in the Caribbean <laughs> um, while, while I was there and could not get a work permit to do other things. And then I eventually got my degree in computer science, um, thought that maybe computer science wasn't the thing I wanted to spend my time on and that maybe I should be a writer. So I tried, I wrote a draft of a novel, which is not very good. And then uh, ended up moving back to California and needed a job. And I started looking for writing jobs and I had some really interesting interviews, but I did not get any of those jobs. And because of my experience working in, um, programming and, and quality assurance, really, um, on, on the MUD, I got a QA job at Electronic Arts, which turned into more of an engineering job. I, I didn't have 40 hours a week of QA to do, and so I was really fortunate to have really supportive engineers on my team who gave me the opportunity to 
really help them. So I built out a CI system so that they could build test environments in AWS. <laughs> and I had no experience with any of these things. Um, the, the, this system started off as a command line interface and then moved into a, a web page that, that worked with things. I had never worked in web development before, so I really learned a ton there. And then from there, became an, a quality engineer at a company called IXL, which is a, a learning um, and education technology company. And from there, my job, uh, I, I don't know that I would actually call it a quality engineer job, but I ended up building a lot of tools for operations and infrastructure, and then also built a lot of tools for the product managers and engineers to do a lot of testing. And I think some of the biggest things that I did there were build out um, a really strong CI system so that they would actually have something to run tests. And then I taught all of the engineers how to write tests, which was a learning experience for me as well, because I was not an expert in writing unit and integration tests when I joined. And from there, I became a QA manager. And I started managing another engineer to kind of pick up where I had left off. And I built out a, a manual um, quality assurance team. Ended up hiring about seven QA testers and turned two of those into leads. And kind of started my journey of learning not only what, what have I experienced as an employee that I would like to see better, but also what, how can I influence the leads under me to also kind of espouse those, those practices and move on. And from there, I, I came to Etsy. So, <laughs> so to reiterate, mud player to mud leader to something in the Caribbean that you sort of just glossed over, which sounds pretty fascinating, but then, you know, fixing computers back to QA. Well, no, sorry, book writer, which I assume is choose your own adventure given your mud history. Uh, and then um, QA manager, I, having done manual QA myself uh, in, in the dark ages, uh, I, I sympathize and uh, leading an entire team of those is pretty fascinating to me. But um, you've been at Etsy how long now? And, and, you know, what are you enjoying about it? Or maybe even like, what's, what's a struggle you're dealing with right now? Yeah, so I've been at Etsy for two years now, and I, yeah, I just had my Etsiversary uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, is that the official term? Is that a that thing is, that they say? That is the official term. If that's, if you ever have a chance to read the the unwritten, unofficial Etsy handbook, it is full of Etsyisms uh, like that. And I think since joining Etsy, I've I've had the kind of the joy to, to be able to grow as a, as a manager, but also to watch some of my engineers grow. One of them, uh, after, after a year of kind of telling them, like, you don't need to do this, you don't have to do it, it's okay, uh, became a manager. <laughs> and, and it's been a joy to, to watch him really uh, grow as a manager as well. And in that time, I, I, <laughs> I forgot to mention, I also manage our search and personalization experience team, which is kind of the, the user-facing product engineering side of search at Etsy. And so that's also been one of my, <laughs> one of my challenges uh, is leading our, uh, the engineering for all of our uh, international efforts as well as all of the product focused search efforts uh, at Etsy. And so although we are both in the same engineering organization, we report to different product organizations. And so I think finding alignment between both of our, 
our groups as well as with the other groups at Etsy. We, we also have buyer organizations and seller organizations. And as you might imagine, there's a lot of overlap in the experience built out between buyers, sellers, search, and international. So I want to ask just about you know, I work for a very small organization now and bureaucracy is relatively light. And, and you know, it, it's a fact of a large organization that there just are complicated networks and ways to get things done and understand things. And it sounds like you, I mean, you basically said your solution for a lot of this is just talking to lots of people. But I'm curious, you know, you've, you've been at Etsy how long and then how has your, um, your network within the organization maybe impacted your ability to solve things or, or, or maybe even just do things more efficiently? Or um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like as you build relational equity across Etsy, how does that affect your job? Yeah, I think when I joined Etsy, I joined into an office that had no other engineering managers. <laughs> and so it was really clear from the outset that I needed to build a cohort and I needed to build it quick. And so from, from that perspective, I, I joined these mixer programs. I, I was able to get set up with a, a, a peer manager that also reported to my same boss with like biweekly one-on-ones. And he was able to tell me about all of the different programs and meetings that my boss had forgotten to tell me about. And so I jumped, I jumped into all of those meetings and I just made it a mission to be visible in all of those meetings. And so I think to an extent, I'm probably louder <laughs> and talk a little bit more maybe than, than other managers. But I do feel like when I, I'm in Brooklyn this week visiting uh, for an event, and when I walk through the hallways, people recognize me, which I think is a really positive indication <laughs> that my, my loudness <laughs> has, has been successful. And uh, I think when other managers join Etsy, I, I tend to encourage them to do the same, which is you know, go to all the meetings, but say something like <laughs> you, can, you can ask me afterwards if you were saying too many things, which is what I did <laughs> after every single meeting. Really, hey, Rich, how, how was that? Was I was I overbearing <laughs> in that last meeting? But um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's I think it's better to, to toe that line. And I also recognize that, like, as a white guy, it, it's a little bit easier for me to do that. But I believe the term is that you're playing this game on the easiest level. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I mean, so this actually leads into a question uh, that we ask a lot of folks on the show, and that is, um, and I think I know the answer to this question. Are you an introvert or an extrovert and how does it affect your work? Yeah, I, I heard Anne's response to this in your last episode, and I think it, mine is similar, which is I am a bit of both. So I talked all day, every day. I tend to have like 30 plus hours of meetings each week. And then I go home and my way of de-stressing is to debrief my wife (laughs) on on all of the conversations. To talk more. Yes. (laughs) And, And then I go into like a dark room and don't say anything and just kind of veg out. But so I would say that I, I definitely lose energy by, by talking, but I get a lot of joy out of it. I, I find it so meaningful to see just ways that I can help people, whether they're my, the people that report to me or my peers. One of the things that I did this year that I'm so happy about is we started a, a formal mentorship program and I was, I was matched with a peer of mine and we we're like, this is kind of weird. Maybe we shouldn't have a mentor-mentee relationship. 
but instead, let's just support each other. So we'll meet every other week and we'll just support each other in our careers. And it's been amazing. And so, you know, I, I love talking to my peers and seeing how I can offer suggestions and how that can influence positive change. And, and it like the karmic payback is immediate because then I get that, I get that help every other week too. Okay. So by, by supporting each other is like you talk over a situation you're in and, and offer each other advice, like peer to peer. Mm -hmm. It's like peer to peer mentoring, really distributed peer mentoring. That's cool. Yeah. And, and, uh, do you, do you feel like, so it sounds like you've, you've been in, in situations where you had some level of authority for a long time. What is your relationship with authority? Do you, how do you feel about having authority about over other people or them having authority over you? How do you, how have you handled that in your life? (laughs) Probably not as well as I should have. I think I, (laughs) I tend to forget that I have authority and that, that leads to some challenges. Uh, So for example, I, I don't have the same, a similar technical background as the engineers on my team. I don't have, um, what mud programming isn't a similar technical background. Sounds like translation to me in a lot of ways. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I, my, my, my background with PHP is like editing a WordPress theme to be really nice. Does PHP have other applications? Can you name one? I'm sorry, we carry on. Dare to be hacked. <laughs> Et- Et- Etsy. Uh, but, um, and, and likewise with JavaScript and React. And I, I really just don't have much of a background in those areas. And so I tend to rely really heavily on, on building trust with my engineers and, and kind of empowering them to tell me what they need and, and how, how they plan on doing things. And I can, I can approach things from a more high level technical space and talk about risk and, and all of those things. But I think at, at the end of the day, I, I don't feel like an authority over the work that they're doing. And in, in many ways, I think that's, that's great, but I think it does lead to challenges when somebody is really looking for more uh, strong direction and that direction is tightly coupled with with my authority over them and and so I think in those situations it's it's a case where I really need to like lean lean harder <laughs> in, into the fact that no actually I, I I am their their boss and you are the boss of them <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, and so so how do you sort through that? I mean, if somebody's looking for very specific specific technical direction, are you introducing them to someone else in the team and, and saying, "Hey, process with them"? I mean, it doesn't sound like you're sitting in GitHub and and just digging through pull requests and commenting, "You did this wrong all day long," uh, or even, you know, "You should do this differently." So, like, like what does that actually look? Like? You are you're not just a manager; you're an engineering manager, specifically overseeing engineers who are you know, solving problems that you're not necessarily more experienced hands-on, which I think is actually maybe an asset, but I'm kind of curious how you're solving that. Yeah, I think for most of the time, I end up, I'm I'm a connector. So I either connect them with somebody on their team. Usually that part is like default. Usually they're going to ask somebody who sits next to them. Um, Beyond that, I tend to connect people with other people or, or with people on other teams, either within our department or across my, my greater scope. It's really common for somebody in search experience 
to be working on something that somebody in one of the local trans teams recently worked on or vice versa. And so there is a lot of just coordination. Connecting people to the right people. Yeah. And I bet yeah. that your, your one-on-ones that you have with people outside of your discipline or, you know, outside of your immediate team, that's been helpful for hooking people up with, you know, people who know stuff they need to know about. Mm-hmm. Being, yeah. Doing the networking part is super important. And uh, I feel like a lot of management, a lot of managers and leaders don't talk to their peers in other orgs and they don't know what's going on. They're, they're too focused on, you know, leaning on their own team. Um, so this is a very interesting approach. Like you're more, I mean, you, uh, I know from talking to you in other times, you have a lot of one-on-ones with people, but they're not all on your team. Yeah. You spend a lot of time talking, but then you transfer this information around so that it finds the right target. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I think this really came out of kind of what <laughs> one of my failure modes earlier in my career, which was to not do that and to be oh. very downward focused with a little bit of slight upward direction. So um, when I was a QA manager, I was very, very in the know about everybody, what everybody on my team was doing, why they were doing it, um, how well they were doing it, and working with my boss to communicate as much as I could to get any additional uh, requests for what the team should be working on. But, you know, as a QA manager, um, you're really like part of a a network (laughs) and it's a huge peer network working with all of the product managers and engineering managers around you, helping them deliver better work. And more often than not, I approached it very um, unidirectionally, (laughs) which is to say like, hello, product managers and engineering managers. I am the QA manager and I have developed this great plan for you. Um, just follow this easy 19 step process and, <laughs> and, and all of your dreams will come true. And as it turns out, nobody likes that. Nobody, nobody <laughs> wants that. And nobody will like you if you do that. <laughs> and so coming to Etsy, I, you know, I had, I had gotten that feedback late, late in my, in my role as a QA manager. And I realized like, not only am I working on a satellite uh, in a satellite office, in a satellite organization. <laughs> um, but uh, I really need to have a really strong peer network if I'm, if I'm going to be successful and if my reports are going to be successful. And I think that's, that is probably the thing that maybe differentiates me from some of my, some of my peers. And I found that, um, like, I've been a manager of tech writing teams a lot, and I, I've often kind of felt... Uh, a peer relationship in particular with the QA manager, because uh, one thing that sets apart good QA leadership and good tech writing leadership from other, uh, other writers and, and QA persons is that they, that those folks want to understand the larger goal of the product company service, whatever it is that they're working on. And so speaking to other people in the products group or across the company gives you a lot more information about that. So you can develop better, better, tools for the end user, better uh, approaches to testing, that kind of stuff. So um, did you did you have this, did you develop this sort of relationship building because of that as well? Or uh, was it simply because people didn't like being handed a plan? Like you to get into QA, you must have XYZ. Here I am the gatekeeper of Minas Tirith. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I think to an extent, I I was able to learn more about what was happening at the company because of some other 
like <laughs> procedural aspects, like you know, lead leads meetings um, at the company, and and those things were kind of handed to me. You know, like Matt, come to this meeting <laughs> with the with the product mm -hmm. and engineering leads, and oh, and I was like, okay, great, I'll be there. But I didn't really think as intentionally about it as as you uh, in the ways that you just mentioned. But yes, mm -hmm. it is absolutely vital and. Um, I think I think now as an engineering manager who works in product spaces that have a lot of overlap with other teams, it's really crucial to me to know what are other teams going to be working on in a similar space. Not only to know like at Etsy we run lots and lots of experiments, and I want to make sure that we're not going to overlap in negative ways. But at the same time, I want to make sure that. We're not both going to go off and build a wheel <laughs> and mm -hmm. at the same time and then realize uh, we probably should have just talked to each other a little bit and realize like, hey, our requirements are within 10% of each other. <laughs> Maybe. We could have built a motorcycle together. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so I want to ask, Matt, your, your title at Etsy is Senior Engineering Manager. And... Um, you know, I, I know that I have uh, leaders who work with me who are relatively new to leadership and are kind of wondering, you know, I think just wrestling constantly with what I do now is leadership. What what do I do next to become a more senior leader? And so, you know, whether it's title or not, and maybe, maybe you start with what it means to be a senior manager at Etsy versus an engineering manager uh, without the senior title, but then also just in your, your own personal opinion, what separates a more junior leader from a more senior leader? And is there specific skill sets that need to be developed or is it just the amount of time they're doing it or what, what, what really makes that difference both at Etsy in title and then also in your mind? Yeah. Well, I think first you have to be at least 35 and, um, no, I <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, I, I think that for me, kind of the difference was in, in figuring out like, what am I doing in my role to be successful and what more could I be doing in my role to be more successful? So, uh, I'll use an example. I was interviewing an engineering manager candidate and I was asking them about how they handled performance reviews. And, you know, it's different at every company and some companies it's not really a thing at all. <laughs> at other companies, it's really, really a thing. And the person I was talking to told me, well, at my company, we have this annual review process but I don't really think it's efficient. So I actually work with my team every quarter and we go through goals and I have these reviews and I realize, like, oh, this person is a senior manager. <laughs> they're, they're thinking about how they can improve the environment and not just getting by, not just doing what is uh, necessary, but what is going to be sufficient. And I think that when you get to that point, um, then whatever you're doing that's better for your team will spread. It'll spread to other teams, whether you're a neighboring cohort or the, or the broader group and you start to affect change. That's, that's kind of where I see senior management management. Um, one of the easiest ways to influence change is by being a leader of leads and, and saying like, Hey, leaders under me, you're getting, <laughs> you need, you need to, to both do this. And when, um, when it's no longer, um, once you develop more ideas to the point that you think your ideas are, are better than my ideas, and I'm really hoping for waiting for that day to come, <laughs> then, <laughs> then I, I think that's a good a good leap into more of a, a senior role as well. 
So like they're uh, they're not just thinking about their own deliverables or the deliverables of their team and that kind of stuff, but how can their team work with other teams? How they can, how can they improve the environment at the company and the the production of the company overall? That kind of stuff is the differentiator, like a larger scope. Yeah, I, I think you could you could say like the the impact gets gets larger because it's not just about making your team you know, operate in alignment with, with everyone mm-hmm. else, but it's, you know, how, how can we as a, as a company uh, um, be even better at this? What, what new things can we do? And we can experiment um, in the same ways that we do with code. We can try a different feedback system for a quarter. We can try a different quarterly goal system. We can, we can do all these different things and see where it takes us. And maybe <laughs> as long as it's, as long as it's more <laughs> than, uh-huh. than the standard, um, there's a lot of room to innovate. And okay. so it seems like, you know, you almost become a leader and it takes some time just to get your feet under you as a leader. And once you maybe have patterns established as a leader, that's when you start to be able to think about the bigger picture things. And, uh, and that's maybe what differentiates a senior leader from a a junior leader. And I, you know, I think you were being sarcastic and I was being sarcastic about having to be 35, but there is some sense that, you know, you need some experience being a leader before you can level up to a senior leader. And, And yeah, maybe you can do that by 22, but you probably had to have, you know, been leading a mud since you were 16 yeah. or something. I've been a uh, sysop since. Uh... <laughs> right. So, I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we jokingly talk about age and its relationship to it, but I think there is some age component and it's not necessarily, you know, I don't think there's a hard line, but there's some amount of, you know, the older you are, maybe in your career, the more just capable you are of thinking about senior big picture things. Um, yeah. You've you know, encountered I, situations yeah. more right. where you had to learn something. I, that's, Super basic. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I I think if you're going to quantify it, it's maybe like quantifying the number of failures you've had. So if you can can stay in a job long enough to just keep failing without them firing you, maybe you level up quite a bit faster. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, you should probably measure your successes too, but I, <laughs> I, I think to an Agree extent, to like... Failure yeah. is so much more interesting. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to... So you were talking about, you know, you, you've you've learned things and you've applied them to your new gig, um, but also how has how becoming a leader and have, having this experience with building teams and interacting with other teams and the way that you share information, how, how has this affected your personal life, like positively or negatively? And know you come home and you debrief to your partner, uh, what else, what else has changed about the way that you interact with the people in your personal life? Yeah. You know, I think that in terms of like really being able to help other people without doing the work yourself, that really came in handy, uh, when my wife was having our first child, um, in the delivering room, <laughs> You know? Yeah, you can get on in there and do it for her. You do that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and this is, it's a joke, but it's also true. Like we went, we went through the trainings together and I was able to help like, like center her, re- reduce some of her stress, remind her of the objective things we talked about, um, help her a, a little bit in, in some things. And, you know, when scary things come up <laughs> and you, you need another brain <laughs> to, uh-huh. to help work things out. But, but at the end of the day, like you can't, I, I can't, I can't do any of the things. And even, you know, my help is perhaps marginal. <laughs> but, but you can encourage and you can coach yeah. and you can yeah. cheer. And, 
Exactly. Yeah. Lots of cheering. And maybe cut the umbilical cord depending on the doctor. Yeah, that that part. <laughs> yeah, I no, but <laughs> all right. Um, but but I would <laughs> no, but but I do think it's been interesting just being able to uh, help other folks. Uh, you know, as 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 my <laughs> as uh, friends and family have taken on leadership positions, I've been able to give them more advice and really just you know listen to them and in ways that I found like the Rand's leadership slack to be a tremendous network of getting support because I didn't know a lot of leaders when I first became a manager. I, I really, if I look back even further to my experience as a, a leader on a mud, I had no support, no mentorship and everyone around me was in their late teens or early twenties and also didn't know any better. And, you know, I, I would say that that's a really great breeding ground for toxic leadership. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, I think I'm really privileged now uh, to have a strong leadership m- mentorship psych- uh, group, both through the Ranslack, but also now um, in my workplace and being able to kind of pass that along to others in, in my life, I think has been really nice. Yeah, yeah, it is a very great uh, resource for everybody that, that that Slack has got a channel for everything, pretty much. Highly recommend. All right, well, uh, since you're pretty happy with the level of, you know, mentorship and guidance and uh, outreach that you give and get, uh, if money were no object, what would you do with your life? Would you change things? What, where, where would you go somewhere? Would you? Would you write a book? Ah. Uh, go back to MUDs? Yeah. <laughs> MUDs, they're the best. I probably would not go back to MUDs, although the the one that I came from is still there and kicking, and there are still like at least ten concurrent users. I don't know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what their monthly average is, but it, there are still people there, people that I that I know and and love. But um, that's why it's MUD M U D instead of M M U D for the mega multiplayer, right? Massively multi users. <laughs> Massively, yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that I would probably explore some of my other hobbies more. Like, I think writing is still something that I, I love doing. I I have not had time for it, um, which is a little sad because I, I realize that it's, it's one of those things that takes all of the time <laughs> that, I, that I don't have. So I'd probably spend more time on that, whether I was writing fiction or... Um, expounding on my soon-to-be wildly successful cocktail napkin, Just Ooh. Talk to People. Um. Yes, Just Talk to People. <laughs> Learn everything from other people. Yeah, I, coming soon to an airport bookshop, bookshop near you. Carefully um. and personally calligraphy written by someone on Etsy. Right, yes. Holy nice. Well, awesome. It has been lovely to chat with you. And uh, I wanted to ask you so that folks could follow up with you in your potential future writings. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? I think matthewnewkirk.com is probably the easiest point. It's it's my blog and there's links to Twitter and LinkedIn and stuff like that. Cool. Uh, Kendall, any more questions? No. Thanks for, thanks for being with us, Matt. And uh, good luck at Etsy translating all the things. I hope that... Uh, <laughs> Someday in private, you can share some of the more horrible stories because I'm sure there's some really amusing ones that 
can't be shared to a broader audience. Sounds like a worthwhile Tumblr. (laughs) (laughs) Translation. Egregious translation. (laughs) Yes. Well, (laughs) thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you later. Ciao.